the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, when Samuel tells Israel to repent and put away their false gods and return to the Lord, this time they listen. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 1. The title of the message is A Heart That God Can Help. First Samuel chapter seven. First Samuel seven. Remember first and second Samuel, they were originally one book, so it's hard to divide the themes up between first and second Samuel. But first Samuel seems to focus a little bit more on lessons from the heart. David is a man after God's own heart, and we'll get into him a little bit more in 2 Samuel, but in 1 Samuel, it seems to teach us good lessons and bad lessons from the heart, and we've been looking at quite a few negative lessons, but we're going to look at a good one, a heart that God can help. Now, chapter 6 started the Philistines sending the ark away and ended with the Israelites at Beth Shemesh also sending the ark away. In other words, neither the Philistines nor the people of Beth Shemesh repented when God dealt with them. And so, sadly, things continue as they were in Israel before the ark had been captured, even though it was back in Israeli hands again. But you know, maybe you've experienced this. Something happens when you've replaced God with religion, and then all of a sudden that religion is stripped from you. It leaves you with a leanness in your soul that's no longer hidden by form and ritual. And when someone responds to that by crying out to the Lord... It reveals a heart that God can finally help. So we're going to look at that as Israel returns to the Lord in chapter 7. Let's begin in verse 1. And the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim that the time was long, for it was 20 years And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So if you remember, when the people of Beth Shemesh, God judged them, they cried out, who can stand before this holy God? They should have said that before they decided to make the ark a cake topper. And so they sent messengers to the nearest city on the way to Shiloh, which is where the ark belonged in the tabernacle. And they said, come fetch it. Can't stay here anymore, just like the Philistines had done. So verse 1 of chapter 7 picks up from there. The men of Kirjath-Jerim, they came and they fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab, 
in the hill and sanctified Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So Kirjath-Jerim is about halfway between Beth Shemesh and Jerusalem, but it's just the first large town on the way to Shiloh. Abinadab is most likely a Levite who lived on the hill just outside the town because I can't see any way that God would allow it to stay there if it wasn't someone who was allowed to handle it. So they brought it into his home and they sanctified or set apart. This was going to be his job from now on. Eliezer, his son, not to be a priest, it was just to keep it, to watch over it and to guard it. So that's his job. Now, why not continue the journey toward Shiloh? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. We do know the high priest family experienced a lot of death. Eli was dead. His two sons were dead. There's no mention of the tabernacle actually being used during this time period. So it is possible there was nothing to take it to. Some scholars believe the Philistines actually destroyed Shiloh. I don't think there's any evidence for that. But the point being is, whatever the reason, they didn't feel like it was the best idea to take it back to Shiloh. And so the people of this town decide to set a guard on it in these troubled times. They learned the lesson of Beth Shemesh. God is holy and to be obeyed. He's not to be treated like an idol to be gawked at. And so they make sure no one goes and looks at this thing that's not supposed to, and they put this guy in charge of it. And so verse 2 tells us, it came to pass that while the ark was there in Kirjath-Jerim, that the time was long. This is 20 years. 20 long years. And it says that all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Israel, in the time before the ark was captured, They had grown used to no Bible teaching. The Levites weren't doing their job. They had grown used to corrupt spiritual leaders. The priests weren't doing their job. And going to worship the Lord had left a bad taste in their mouth. But at least, at least it had still been there if they wanted to do it, right? They could still go to church if they wanted to. They could still worship the Lord if they wanted to. But not anymore. And for 20 long years, all of that was stripped away. I've wondered what would happen if church became illegal or if Bibles were forbidden or if we had to sing silently like they did at one time in China because they would get arrested for singing out loud or if meeting with other believers put your life at risk. What if all the excitement and all the energy of going to church was gone? Would people still hold to their faith? Well, truth is we don't have to imagine. We did church via streaming only for just three months. We still had our Bibles. We still had our freedom. We weren't in any danger, but the normal structure of worship was gone, kind of like Israel here. And what's been the reaction? Well, on July 8th, 2020, Barna Research released their 2020 State of the Church report. That report sadly showed that 32%, that's one-third 32% of practicing Christians in the United States have dropped out of church completely since the pandemic began. 32%. They're not streaming. They're not attending. Nothing. They're not associated with church anymore. That tells me that if the church had been important to them at one time, it had been important for the wrong reasons. Now that those reasons are gone, well... (laughs) Frankly, it's not very exciting to wear a mask to go to church. It's not very exciting to socially distance. It's not very exciting to watch a service online, although I do realize my handsome face is still there. (laughs) Just as it wouldn't be very exciting to 
put your life at risk or to sing silently because you might get arrested if you sang out loud or to study the few pages of the Bible because that's all that's been able to be smuggled to you. We're doing 2 Timothy 2 again. Yeah, it's the only page we have. Those aren't very exciting things either. I'm sure that when all this happened, that some in Israel decided, wow, I guess, I know worship really isn't that important to me. It was never really important in the first place. Now that all the exciting parts were gone. But this report from the Barna Research Group found something else. Of those 32% who said they had dropped out of church completely, they were more likely to say they struggled with anxiety now, boredom, and insecurity more likely to struggle with those things than those who still regularly attend a church. Now, God sometimes allows anxiety, boredom, and insecurity to surface in our lives to stretch us and to draw us close to him. That doesn't automatically mean you're not walking with the Lord. That's not what I'm saying. But those things can be an indicator of a leanness of soul, exposing the lack of God's presence in my life. Because the Bible describes that we were created that way. Now, not originally created that way in the sense that there wasn't a perfect solution for it. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, he says, For the creation was made subject to emptiness. And that wasn't by our choice. It's not like we had a vote in this. It's not like God said, you know, how should I make people? And then he made the first person and he said, well, you do this and this and this. And actually, put this little like God-shaped hole in my heart because that will remind me I need you. That wasn't our choice. God did this. But it was by reason of him who had subjected the same in hope. God wanted us to be those who are hoping in him, who are looking to him for our answers. Because if we don't, we're going to be in trouble. (laughs) If we look elsewhere, we look to ourselves, we're going to be in trouble. So God subjected us to this. He made us, he created us, designed us this way. Now, in the garden, they didn't sense any of that because the Lord walked with them through the cool of the day. They had everything they needed. There was no sin. It was evident they always needed the Lord and they were happy with that. But now in the fall, sometimes we can think we don't need that. And so God has designed us this way so that when we stop following him, we stop being in his presence, like Adam and Eve were, that we begin to experience this emptiness, a leanness of soul to show our need. Now, when you and I participate in worship, even if we're not worshipers, when we participate in worship, God's presence in the midst of others who are genuinely worshiping him, it can cover up that absence in my life. I can emotionally feed off that and not realize my spirit is dry. But when I opt out of worship completely, that illusion is shattered. And so for 20 long years, Israel didn't worship. And as their leanness grew, that emptiness became more apparent to them. They realized what they had lost. And so it says they lamented after the Lord. It's interesting, that word lamented, it's a unique word. It's only used a few times in scripture. But it means to pursue someone, to pursue them wherever they go with requests and complaints until they respond. Kind of like, my kids when they were little. Dad, 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 dad. They were crying out to the Lord. Now, when this word is used in the scripture to refer to crying out to the Lord, it means to wail with sincere remorse, 
They were pouring out their heart to the Lord. Things are bad, God. We realize how far away you are from us and how bad that is. And it's not good. Would you come back, Lord? Can we come back? That's what they're doing. They are sincerely sorry for what they had done to the Lord and how they'd forsaken him and how now they've realized what's happened because of it. They didn't want to return to religion. They cried out for their relationship with the Lord to be restored. And so eventually in crying out, they turned to the one person they knew still had a relationship with the Lord, to Samuel. Look at verse three. And Samuel spoke unto all the house of Israel saying, now when it says all the house of Israel, it means they came to him. They came to him for answers. They said, what do we do, Samuel? Samuel, we want the Lord back. What do we do? And so Samuel spoke unto all the house of Israel saying, if you do return unto the Lord with all your heart, then put away the strange gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. It was likely part of their complaint was also the oppression of the Philistines. Now, Samuel's kind of got three parts to this response that he has. The first part, he says, if you do return unto the Lord with all your heart, with all your hearts in the Hebrew language here, it actually comes before if you do return. So in other words, he says, if with all your heart, you are indeed returning. The word there for hearts means your mind, your soul. The the part of us that is deciding what we're going to do with our lives. If you are truly sincere in returning to the Lord, then this is what you need to do. Now, half-heartedly returning to the Lord usually means I am returning for the wrong reasons. I don't like my circumstances or you know, I don't like the way I feel. Being sad about my circumstances is not being the same as being sad about where my relationship with the Lord is. For example, repentance looks like this. Turn over to James 4. Just after the book of Hebrews, James 4. In verses 8 through 10. Now, James is not uh, the easiest guy to read. And you have to take it into mind that he's writing to people who have been persecuted. So, I mean, James, he's hardcore. He loved the Lord and he was serious about his walk with the Lord. And it comes out in his letter to them. But he tells these folks who are struggling, going through a really rough time, and he deals with their hearts. And in verses 8 through 10, He has a lot to say throughout his letter, but in verses 8 through 10, he says, listen, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. That's what repentance looks like. Repentance starts with the mind and the heart first, okay? Okay. It's a choice to think differently. So that's what he's saying here. Draw near to God. The idea is before you were finding some other solution to your problems. But now draw near to the Lord and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. You got to deal with the inside first. Be afflicted, mourn, weep. Instead of longing for the days of laughter and where things were great and wonderful and everything was exactly how you liked it, mourn over your sin. Grieve over your sin. The word heaviness means lament, just like Israel was doing here. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he'll lift you up. So this concept of wholehearted repentance, of wholeheartedly returning to the Lord, it starts with your, on the inside. It's a choice to think differently. It's a decision to approach life God's way instead of my way. And so Samuel says, if you're sincerely repenting, well, 
here's the appropriate course of action. This is what that looks like. And so he tells them, put away the strange gods from among you. Put away the Ashtaroth from among you and serve him only. The strange gods just means gods of other lands, foreigners' gods. You have a god, Israel. You don't need to turn to any other gods. The Ashtaroth, well, that was the Canaanite goddess of fertility and love, a constant stumbling block to the nation of Israel. And he says, you got to cut this off from among you. Now, when he says from among you, Samuel's not saying it's okay to have like private idols in your home. That's not his point. But he's saying, if you really are returning to the Lord, then the public idols got to go. They got to be torn down. They can't remain. You know, I think it's important to understand that sincere repentance does not make a person sinless. When you sincerely have a heart of repentance, that doesn't make you sinless. You can love God supremely and still discover idols in your heart as you grow in your life at the risk of sounding like the great wisdom, the wise person, Shrek the ogre. Christians are like onions. We have layers. The Lord, honestly, if he had confronted me when I was 15, a very young believer, with the things he's dealing with me now, I'd have probably been like, there ain't no way I could do this Christian thing. So throughout our lives, the Lord peels back a layer and he exposes an idol. You know, he exposes something that doesn't please him. Doesn't mean I didn't love him supremely, but now I've got a new confrontation and it's time to knock down the idol. And the Lord, you can love the Lord supremely and find those things throughout your life as he pulls back the next layer. We're not going to be fully done. Paul the apostle, he said, I have not apprehended that for which I was apprehended for. I'm not there yet, he says. I have not laid hold fully on what God saved me for. I'm still a work in progress. And I know Paul loved God supremely. But, while that's true, a repentant heart does not leave a huge idol standing in the front yard. And so Israel needed to deal with this. Get rid of it. Now, repentance isn't just turning away from something. It's turning towards something. And so he says, And prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only. The word prepare there means to fix, to firmly establish. It's the opposite of wavering, of waffling. He says, no more waffling on your spiritual loyalty. Decide today to serve the Lord alone. Very similar to what Joshua said to the nation of Israel before he died. Choose you this day whom you're going to serve. If it be the Lord, then serve the Lord. If it's going to be the Balim, the gods, then do that. But you can't be in between. And Samuel says, if you'll do this, well, the Lord will also rescue you from the Philistines, just like God had always promised he would. I imagine that the Philistines had gotten back on their feet in the 20 years after the ark debacle. Israel likely had to yield a lot of their land and some of their freedoms, maybe paying tribute. I don't know. But I do know this. One of the things I love about the Lord is how he handles our forgiveness You know what I'm glad the Lord doesn't do? I've been in management a lot of my life. And when someone blows it, they break trust. And you kind of got your eye on them after that, right? You know, you, okay, well, all right. Well, there's, you know, here's the consequence for that. And let's work through it. But you still got your eye on them. I'm so grateful that when the Lord forgives, he doesn't give us the evil eye when we show up the next day. He doesn't look at us and go, once we've come home, He truly acts as if we never left. 
He's like the father with the prodigal son. He truly acts as if we never left. I love that about him. Do you realize how much the Lord loves you? You know, what his forgiveness means for you? How much he wants to bless you and work in your life? Well, Israel says, we'll do that. Verse four, then the children of Israel, they did put away Balim, their idols, and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. And so Samuel, once they had done that, he said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I'm going to pray unto the Lord for you. Let's get this right. Now that you've done that, let's make this right. And that's the idea. The Mizpah was, the word Mizpah just means watchtower. There are tons of cities named Mizpah throughout Israel because they had lots of these watchtowers. This particular location was nearby Shiloh, and it was a common gathering site when the nation had to make important decisions. When we read in the book of Judges and they had to decide what to do with the atrocity committed by the people of the town of Gibeon and Benjamin, they came to Mizpah to make that decision. So this is a place where they came to make important decisions. And so he says, come, let's gather. This is important. And he says, I will pray for you unto the Lord. In other words, I'm going to ask the Lord to forgive you and restore your relationship. And so they gathered together to Mizpah. And it says here, they drew water. They went and got water and they poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted on that day. And they said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. Now, this concept, we are poured out like water. That phrase, that idea, it's a common phrase in the Middle East to show you have a desperate need. Basically, what they're saying is, Lord, we've been poured out. We got nothing left. If you don't restore us, if you don't rescue us from our enemies, we are done for. It's over for us. And I realize that some people do that in like an accusative way or a legalistic way, as if, well, I'm only in trouble because God dropped the ball. If he'd just gotten me that promotion or if this had happened, you know, I don't understand why God always doesn't take care of me. Obviously you can say it like that or that God owes you something. I don't understand. I go to church and I do this and that. And you know, why did God let this happen? But that's, I don't think that's what Israel's saying here. In fact, that's why what Israel says next was so important. They say, we have sinned against the Lord. They pour out the water saying, Lord, we got nothing left. We need you. If you don't come through for us, we are in big, big trouble. And And then they say, because Lord, this is our fault. We did this, not you. Anyone can make excuses. Anyone can blame other people. In fact, I think it takes very little effort to call out the Lord for what we see as his blunders or his unfairness. But only a humble person is honest enough to declare, God, this one's on me. You don't owe me anything. And I'm coming to you now, not because I deserve anything from you but because I need mercy and grace. And that's the person, that's the heart that God can help. In James 5, 5, it tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives what to the humble? Grace. Grace. What's grace? It's God's unmerited favor lavished upon, just overflowing towards those who don't deserve any of it. The infinitely ill-deserving, as one of my teachers at school said, And it's big because it goes beyond just salvation. It's for everything. I can come to him, whatever my need is, and I can come on the basis of his grace. If I humble myself and come on the basis of his grace, it can work in my life. 
So if I'm struggling with a sin or if I'm struggling with a relationship or if I'm battling an illness, if I'm discouraged, if I'm experiencing anxiety, if I need salvation, if I have an enemy that's mistreating me, I can come to the Lord and I can say, Lord, I'm not coming to you on the basis of anything you owe me. I realize that I put myself in this mess. I don't need to blame Adam. I don't need to blame anybody else. I put myself in this mess. I chose my own ways. Lord, I need help. And I'm coming to the only one who can help me. And I come to you on the basis of the cross, on the basis of your grace, on the basis of what Jesus did, not on how good I am. And the Lord says that he's near to those who are like that. That's a heart that God can help. Is that your heart? Is your heart in a place where God can help change your life or use you in service? Is it in a place that he can help? The Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So what condition is your heart in? Lord, I think of the prophet. He cried out and he said, Lord, I've heard of your ways. Read about them all the time. I do stand in awe of your deeds. The things you did, they're amazing. But Lord, could you renew them in my day? Oh Lord, how we long to be in a place where we can see you move in our lives. To have hearts that you can help, that aren't pride-filled, Lord, that aren't self-sufficient. But rather, Lord, are humble, repentant, loyal to you. We want to see you move in our day. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.